Father, thank you that you invite us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you that you are worthy of worship. You're a God of awesome might and power. And that you reveal that preeminently through your self-sacrificing love. Thank you for giving us the privilege to gather together for a time of amplified worship where we fix our eyes on Jesus. Would you capture our attention in a fresh way? Would you touch our hearts? Would you inspire us and direct us through the power of your word? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So what comes to mind when you think of worship? If I were to say, uh, what do you picture a person worshiping looks like? Just, just picture in your mind right now, and I'm going to put a few pictures up there and say, was this at all what might have come to your mind? I still think that my remote might not be working, so if we can just keep going. Oh, we're up there. Perfect. All right, so does this come to anybody's mind when you think of worship? You think of, of singing, you think of praising God, you think of a, a big congregation of people. Sometimes this is the main thing that's thought of, of uh, maybe a Christian concert would be worship. Or how about uh, this? Lighting some candles? Maybe not many of you thought of that, but a lot of people tend to think that uh, if they light candles, it'll, it'll be meaningful to God. Uh, there's actually, this takes place in other religions too, if we go to the next slide. Right? So this is uh, Buddhism. Are, are these individuals worshiping, these monks worshiping? How about this man as he meditates? Is he worshiping? Is this some of the things that came to your mind when you thought of worship? Let's keep going. So here you have a Hindu. I have some 300 million gods to choose from to worship. How do you worship? Which one do you choose? What does worship look like? Here you have an, a, a Muslim worshiping Allah with his prayer rug. There's different postures that we picture of worship. Here you have somebody with a rosary. How many times can I say this, this prayer? And, and what exactly is worship anyway? We're going to dive a little bit deeper in that this morning because if you go back to Revelation chapter 14, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Revelation 14. It will also be on the screen. But Revelation 14 We saw back in chapter 13 that worship was a very important aspect of uh, the end time crisis that takes place. Revelation chapter 14, we're looking at the third angel's message. And last week we looked at an overview of this as uh, symbolized in the experience of Cain and Abel. And we saw how Cain trusted to the sacrifice of Jesus by bringing that lamb as an offering. No, sorry, I got it backwards, right? That's what Abel did. Whereas Cain was trusting to the fruits of his own labors, what he could accomplish, what he could do. And that trusting in himself led him to the place where he committed the first crime. The first crime, or the first murder, took place as a result of false worship. So in the third angel's message, at the very beginning, it it warns us about worship once again. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image, if, if anybody is, is worshiping, then it goes on in verse 11, they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. Here's the fascinating thing. In Revelation, everybody's worshiping. It's not just the, the, a certain group of people that's worshiping, but you have people who are either worshiping the beast or they're worshiping the lamb. 
There's only two options in our lives, and there may be a multiplicity of ways in which the beast is worshipped, but there is only one Jesus. Well, Jesus himself gave us an idea of what worship looked like, and we'll go to Matthew chapter 15, and, and he unpacks a little bit this idea of worship, and it's, it's a very important idea. We'll have this on the screen, but it's a very important idea when we're studying the book of Revelation, because in Revelation, sorry, actually, here we have a definition of worship while, we're, while you're headed to Matthew chapter 15, but in the book of Revelation, worship comes up 24 times, and of those 24 times, 10 of those refer to the worship of the beast, out of those 24. Uh, We can go back. You can keep it at that. Sorry. (laughs) One more. Back. Perfect. All right. So 24 of those are worship in general, and 10 of those are specifically to the worship of the beast. There's a a big issue surrounding worship in the book of Revelation. I like this from Noah Webster's dictionary in 1828, defining the, the word worship, which can be just divided into two words, worth and ship. But we'll look at that in the next definition here. But this one says, to, uh, let's go back one, sorry, to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Is that a, a good picture of worship? To, to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. And you often see in the Bible that worship is accompanied by somebody bowing down. They, they fell on their face before God in worship. But here's another definition that we looked at a few, uh, a few months ago. Worship is the habitual process of accurately so this should have started off saying true worship, right? As opposed to false worship that we're, we're talking about with the worship of the beast. True worship is the habitual process of accurately assessing the character of God. Who is God? Assessing who he is and ascribing worthiness to him for who and not just what he is. Okay, so this is really entailed in the word worship because the word worship is worth and ship. Worth and ship, ascribing worth, ascribing value, saying this is why this God is worthy of our praise. He's why he's worthy of our worship. So as we come together, finally back in, the, in our, our house of worship, and we come together at this hour of worship, how do we know that we're worshiping the Lamb? It's a crucial question to be answering, because look at what happens in Matthew chapter 15. We'll go to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1, where we find that that something takes place in the life of Jesus. Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee, and he just walks into the house, and he sits down to eat, and he begins to eat bread. And this was shocking to them. Not shocking because they were in the midst of the pandemic, and you need to wash your hands frequently, but shocking because at the it was understood that you would go, first of all, to the, the basins for ritual washing and you would wash your hands thoroughly because you might be ceremonially unclean and you needed to make sure that your hands were washed properly. This is, this is how it worked, just to make sure that you were operating as a set-apart people, as operating in holiness. To us, it sounds kind of strange. We know you use soap and water before you wash. But I want you to think about as we go through this that, that just because those traditions and we think, wow, why were they confused by those traditions? Is it possible that we too have some traditions that, that aren't founded on the word of God that, that we use and we follow that, that maybe actually don't help us or other people come in contact with Jesus and to truly ascribe worth 
to him for who he is. So 15 verse 1 of Matthew says this, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Now notice, they're a little timid to directly accuse Jesus. They're, They're wise on this part, but they start with his disciples. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their their hands when they eat bread. Well, why are your disciples? They're not following the rituals. They're not going through the motions. They, this is the way we worship. Why aren't they following through? Verse 3. He answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Whoa! He says, your traditions are actually getting in the way of the commandments of God. Verse 4. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. You can say amen, Dad. <laughs> right? This is, this is a, a clear commandment from God to honor your father and mother. But notice what Jesus goes on to say. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. This is... This is Something called Corbin. You could, you could take your household and you could put it in a trust saying, hey, this is all for God. Nobody can touch it anymore. Oh yeah, mom and dad, I realize that they can't work anymore, but hey, I've dedicated it to God. It's all for him. And you could feel really good about yourself. You could feel really holy like you had, had stepped up a level because everything was for God even though you wouldn't give it to God until you died. So you could say everything is a gift to God, and this is something that they they regularly practiced. He goes on to say in verse 6, Then he, he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Why do you transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition? You make the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. We have to be very careful that our traditions, our customs, our way of doing what we call worship doesn't actually get in the way of ascribing worth to this awesome God that we come to worship. Because you find in the Bible that that when Jesus comes, they're confused about who God really is. and And they're so set on their rituals, they're so set on their sacrifices, that they miss what the sacrifice was pointing to. They miss the Messiah himself. And verse 7 goes on to to, to unpack this in 7 through 9 in light of uh, worship specifically. It says, hypocrites, you're the ones... parading and, and pretending, will do, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, and this is from Isaiah 29. Have you been enjoying our Sabbath school lesson study? Those of you that have been in Isaiah, it's great to be able to study through the book of Isaiah. If you're missing that, we have Bible study every week here at 9.30 and also on Zoom. Verse 8 says, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. They're, they're they're saying the right things. They're, they know the right things to say. But then their hearts it, aren't near to me, right? But their heart is far from me. You know, this is a challenging thing and it's a beautiful thing. Because what Jesus is inviting you to is to fall in love with him. 
He, he's not worried about the accoutrements, the, the traditions, the, the things that are added on. What he wants is your heart. He wants you to fall extravagantly in love with him. What is worship? According to Noah Webster's dictionary, it's extravagant love, extreme love, and, it, and extreme submission. It goes on to say in verse 9, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And, and this is exactly what we find taking place in the end time crisis. There is a vain worship, a false worship, a pointless worship that is taking place because they're simply following the traditions of men rather than this law of infinite love that God has given. You see, God is more interested in the fact that you honor and love your family than that you go through this, these traditions. This is the Pharisees were, were doing all these things with their homes. And he says, look, I'd rather that you took care of your family. I'd rather that you love the people around you than that you pretended to be holy by dedicating something extra to me. And this isn't that Jesus was against offerings. There were other times when he talked to the, the Pharisees about their offerings. He said, you tithe the, the mint and the cumin, you take every tenth leaf. There's a tiny little leaf and you pull it off every tenth leaf. He says, and you do well. You, you should tithe that. But you neglect the justice and the love of God. You're not letting it bear fruit in, in loving your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to unpack this inner uh, issue that's going on here in chapter 15. Uh, The disciples right after this, the disciples say, do you realize, Jesus, that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? (laughs) Do you realize that 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 ruffled some feathers? You know, you're you're going against, you're bucking the train. You're not going along with all the customs and things. Do you realize that, and Jesus could have washed his hands, couldn't he? I mean, why didn't he just go along with the the ritual cleansing. Why not just go along with these things? Jesus obviously wanted for them to recognize that all of that was getting in the way of a heart relationship with Jesus. So we go on in chapter 15, our next slide, verse 18. This is what he tells his disciples to explain to them what all he's talking about, about this inner uh, transformation that he wants to see. He says, but those Things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. It's not what you eat and how you wash your hands beforehand, but it's what comes out of your heart that creates the defilement in man. And then verse 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. He says, your heart is where this issue is, and in the heart is where you are experiencing Vain worship. And it's creating a hatred and a lack of love for the ones who you should be uh, treating with love around you. Verse 20, these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So what is worship? And, and when does worship happen? Is it, is it when we come here and we're in our church and we're here from, from 11 to 12, 12, 15? Is that worship? Is it when we're singing? Is it when we're praying? Is it when we're... What is worship? Well, those things amplify worship, I believe. At least that's our goal here. That's why we have the the stained glass window that reminds us of Jesus. 
That's why we, we sing songs that point our, our attention to Jesus. And, and songs have a way of moving the heart like nothing else. But I want to challenge you with a thought. That you are worshiping, whether you're here or not. From the time that your eyelids open until the time that your eyelids close. There is a um, commencement address that kind of encapsulates this in a fascinating way. There's a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace. Now, David uh, Foster Wallace was not a Christian. He grappled with Christianity quite a bit. You can look him up. He wrote a number of different novels and, and things like that. But I was hearing about him and specifically this commencement address that he had. He was a university professor at Kenyon College. And this is what he said. He said, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You know, and I think that's true in the context of Revelation. Everybody is worshiping. They're either worshiping the beast or they're worshiping the lamb. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship. Now, remember, he doesn't believe in Christianity necessarily, is this. He goes on to say this. Is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Anything else that you're constantly focused on, that you're ascribing worth to, he says that will eat you alive. What does he mean exactly? He says if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Is that true? How much is enough? Always a little bit more. Money is never enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. No matter how how beautiful, whatever you try to do, you're always going to fall short of what you're longing for. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power ever over others to numb you to your own fear. Now that's the truth. Just look at the example of King Herod. King Herod, who killed son after son after son, who killed, it, Caesar actually said that it would be better to be one of King Herod the Great's uh, pigs than to be one of his own children, because he didn't kill pigs, because he was trying to please the Jews with that, in that way. He was a bloodthirsty man who was power hungry, who was constantly trying to protect. And that's why he killed all the babies in Bethlehem after Jesus was born goes on to say, worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You know, the more education that I get, the more that I read, the more that I realize how little I actually know. Have you experienced that before? The more you focus in on something, the more you realize there is that I don't know about that topic. Here's the fascinating thing about David Foster Wallace. He goes on to say that the day in and day out, we unconsciously are, are worshiping things. But he said, here's the, the key of what you want to experience. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able to truly care about other people. Is that a beautiful thing? The idea is uh, to truly be attentive, to truly think about the the needs and wants of people around you, to to truly care about others. And then he goes on to say, and to sacrifice for them over and over in a myriad of 
petty ways every day, that is real freedom. Now, if only, if only David Foster Wallace had, had really come in contact with the one who can alone empower us to experience this. Because I think he got the picture of, of what worship is like, and we'll unpack that a little bit more in Romans chapter 12. But, but David Foster Wallace never grabbed a hold of the matchless charms of Jesus. He never came to accept the law of love as the guide for life. He never came to surrender his heart to Jesus. And it's discouraging if you try to love without knowing Jesus. If it's not the birth out of a relationship, if you're just going out to get it done, that too will end up being a dead-end role. Because what are you worshiping then? You're worshiping yourself. What you can do. How you can love. And David Foster Wallace ended up committing suicide at the age of 46. He had the right picture of what it's all about. But he missed the source of his strength. So in Romans chapter 12, we pick up the source of our strength and we see this beautiful picture of what God is calling us to. And it's not just for an hour of worship. It's not just for our daily worship, but it is for a life of worship. From the time that we open our eyes till the time we go asleep, I think we're worshiping. But what God wants for us to worship is Him. To ascribe worth to Him in all of His beauty. To have true worship in our lives. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, actually we'll read it in the ESV here because the way it encapsulates the last part of the verse, it says, I appeal to you therefore. That word for appeal in the Greek, it's, it was used to describe when you were trying to get your army super excited for a battle. You, went, you were making this inspirational speech to them. So picture that this is what Paul is saying. I'm urging you. As soldiers for Jesus, I'm, I'm giving you this picture of what the Christian warfare is all about. I appeal to you, therefore. Notice. Notice the therefore. You don't want to pass by little things like that in the Bible. These things are, are crucial to note because when he says therefore, what is he talking about? Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. And in, in Romans 1 through 11, if you have read Romans recently, he is reminding us time and time again of the incredible goodness of God. You have Romans chapter 2 verse 4 where he says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 5 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 8 says that he works all things together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. It goes on to say that he who didn't spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how would he not with him freely give us all things? There's this picture of a God of wide open arms and it's again and again emphasizing that it's by faith, not by works. It's by trusting in Jesus and what he has done for us. So it says, I appeal to you, therefore, based upon all that's come before here in Romans, brothers, by the mercies of God. And, and that word for mercy is this rich word of, of tender pity for, for those who are in desperate need. By, by the mercies of God, recognizing I desperately needed God and he stepped into my life. He's come for me while I was yet without strength. Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5 says. By the mercies of God, recognizing his incredible love, his incredible tender mercy and compassion for me. 
based upon that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This picture of, of going to the sanctuary and, and of going to offer your offering on, this, on the altar, saying, offer your own body as a living sacrifice. Give, give your whole life, every bit of your physical strength, every bit of your, your spiritual strength, every bit of your mental capacity, emotional capacity, give it all, lay it all on the altar. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. This is worship. This is what it all boils down to. When you want to know what worship is, it's giving yourself wholeheartedly back to God as a response to his infinite mercy and love towards you. And then the fruit of that is incredibly beautiful. It goes on in verse 2 to describe it this way. It says, And do not be conformed to this world. Don't, don't go after the mold, the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm so glad that word renewing is there. Metamorphosis. It's this, this idea that, that God steps into your heart, your life, your mind, your thoughts. And he's the one that recreates them. As you fix your eyes on Jesus... It transforms you from the inside out. And what does that look like? For me, that looks like every morning saying, God, here I am. Every night, actually, I say, Lord, would you wake me up tomorrow morning? Would you cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning from Psalm, I believe it's 138. Would you help me to see your beauty afresh tomorrow morning? And when I wake up in the morning, making that the first thing, Going to Jesus and saying, would you transform me by the renewing of my mind? Would you help me to see your tender mercies and compassion in a way that changes me from the inside out? To be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is worship to live your whole life for something. Now, I've lived my life for a lot of different things. I mean, I could, could go through a lot of different examples in my life. And I have, I think, a very obsessive personality. Like, there's been times when all I could think about was riding my bike every afternoon so that I could prepare for the Pathfinder Bikeathon. Or there was times where all that I lived for was basketball practice or football practice, getting that trophy at the end of the year. And every one of those obsessions in my life, they truly do eat you alive. That is worship. Whatever you're thinking about, whatever has your attention, your focus throughout your days, that is what you're ascribing worth to. What has your energy? What has your strength? What am I focused on throughout my days? It's got to be more than from 11 a.m. to 12.15 a.m. on Saturday mornings that we are focused on this infinite God of love. It's got to be a continual coming back to Jesus, taking the Bible with you, memorizing Scripture, singing Songs about Jesus, getting scripture songs in your mind, whatever it takes to have your eyes on Jesus. Now, the amazing thing is, you have here Paul saying, hey, this is, this is your worship. To give your whole life, your whole body, to just put it all on the altar as a response to the incredible love that he's given to you. Now, look at how he unpacks what this looks like in your life. Okay, this is, this is so beautiful. You can't miss this. We're just going to go through bullet points here uh, of what God wants for you to experience and what worship will look like for you on a daily basis. You want to know if you're worshiping the true God? 
here's what the fruit will be of worship in your life. Spiritual worship. Uh, let's see here. And the, first of all, uh, we have, uh, let's go to the next slide. In Romans chapter 12, it goes on for verses 3 to, I believe it is verse 6, if we can go forward. Oh, yeah, keep going. There we go. Verses 3 to 8. It unpacks for us that God is going to gift us to be the body. We are the body of Christ. As we heard in the song, our hands are to reach people. Our our feet are to go. We're to be there for people. So verses 3 to 8 unpack this with prophecy and teaching and exhorting, leading and giving and showing mercy. These are all things that are gifts that are given to us to be able to worship, to live lives of worship. Have you thought of leadership as worship before? Have you thought of giving and showing mercy as worship before? Have you thought of preaching and teaching, exhorting as worship? And then it goes on to unpack it like this. It says uh, in verse, let's go to the next slide, chapter 12 and verse 9, it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. It begins to give us this picture of what our, our love should look like. Because if we are worshiping this God whose character is revealed in the law of love, then that will begin to be reflected in our lives, our thoughts, our actions. And so it unpacks this to what this looks like. Verse 10 says, Be kindly affectionate. Put each other first. We can keep going through the slides. Just imagine these things being a part of your worship, a part of your life. Did you know that this is what it means to truly worship, is to put the people around you first, to be kindly affectionate towards them. Verse 11, be diligent and fervent in service, to to be stirred up to serve people out of the love that you have experienced in Christ. Be joyful in hope, verse 12. Joy can be a part of worship. Should, should there be joy in worship? should be a lot of joy. There can be a lot of joy in serving in worship. And it goes on to say, be patient in hard times. Be faithful in prayer. These are verse 12. Prayer is a part of worship. Prayer is an important part of worship. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer. But sometimes, prayer can be a part of false worship. Just look at the Pharisees. And how they were reciting their prayers. They would stop on the street corner and they would just begin to pray in order to get recognition for what they were doing. They weren't truly worshiping. But true prayer is one of the most beautiful things in worship. But then look at some of the more practical things that it begins to unpack for us of what our worship should look like. It says, share with those in need in verse 13. Verse 13 continues, it says, practice hospitality. Did you know that that when somebody has need around you, when you see that person who has less than you and you say, I'm going to help them out, and you give to them, that's worship. Did that picture come to your mind when we talked about worship? It, It didn't come to my mind. When I say worship, I think of being in church, I think of praying. But the idea of worship is so much better than that. We are, and think about this. If you were an unbeliever, And so you're not ascribing worth to Jesus Christ, who is worthy of our worship. And I walk up to you, and you're going through a really rough time. You don't have what you need 
Maybe it's because of the way life circumstances, or maybe it's just because of your bad choices. And in spite of your bad choices, I walk up to you and I help you out. I come close to you. I meet your needs. And you know that I'm a Christian. What better way to ascribe worth to God for somebody that's an unbeliever than to to share with them? Or to practice hospitality, to go to that person who doesn't have a place to live, who doesn't have a, a spare, uh, isn't able to have a meal, to invite them into your home. This, Paul says, is a part of our reasonable service, our spiritual worship. We keep going, verse uh, 14, bless those who persecute you. That's tough. When people are mistreating you, Paul says, bless them. Say, I hope good things happen in your life, even though you're totally treating me like this. Bless you. Goes on to say, have sympathy and empathy in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. When you see somebody happy, when they're succeeding, when things are going well for them, true worship is to come alongside them and say, oh, I'm so happy for what's happening in your life. I'm so excited to, to be moved from within with joy for what's happening in their lives. And to weep with those who weep, to, to come along somebody when they're going through a rough time, to cry with them. To to be in such close connection with people that you have sympathy and empathy for what they're going through. Live in harmony with everyone, verse 16. Then it goes on to say, be humble and spend time with people in low positions. That's verse 16. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the sight of all men. When people witness how we act, how we behave, the things that we're doing, do they say, man, I appreciate their actions. I appreciate the way that they're, they're working. And, and then you can say, well, I'm just following Jesus. And that ascribes worth to who God is. It helps people to recognize the goodness of God. Verse 18 says, live at peace with everyone as long as it depends upon you. If you have the option... If there's anything you can possibly do to find peace with that person, that's a part of worship. Don't take revenge, verse 19. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to, to, to drink. Come close to people. Love them, even when they're mistreating you. This is our calling. Now you could see why this would make you suicidal. If you read this list and you thought, this is what I have to do, That could be really depressing. We could say, amen, go out of here, and just this is the life you need to live. But thankfully, it started off by saying, in recognition of the mercies of God. Thankfully, Romans has emphasized again and again that it's by faith, not by works that we're saved. It's out of the overflow of accepting his love for you already. He already loves you. Whether you've chosen him or not, whether you believe today or not, whether you have messed up the the past hour or the past week, no matter what you have done, God loves you. And he's hoping that you'll accept that love in a way that will change everything for you. Verse 21, overcome evil with good. Don't respond with evil. The the world may be filled with evil. Our Our resort is to be to goodness, to overcome evil. And in the end, we find that there are two systems. There's a system that tries to force people into a certain mold, and there's those who say, I'm going to overcome evil with good. I'm going to love until the very end. I'm going to endure in love. And then chapter 13 continues. Verses 1 to 5 say, Be subject to the governing authorities. 
That's a little bit tougher one sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> Be subject to the, the governing authorities. Follow what the authorities are telling us. Uh, so we really have to sit here with a mask six feet apart and they're telling us all of this? Yes, follow through with what the government is telling you. And this can actually be a part of worship. So long as the laws of the land do not conflict with the laws of God, we are honoring God and worshiping God by our willingness to follow Him whether we agree or not. Can I get an amen? At least one? (laughs) All right. uh, The next one gets even harder. But verse 6 Pay taxes, (laughs) right? Paul's breaking it down to us. He's like, hey, this is what a wholehearted life for God looks like. Honesty and integrity and faithful relational love in every direction in your life, including the government. And he's talking to people in the Roman Empire. He's talking to people, this is a corrupt government. And yet he wanted for them to pay taxes. And then we'll finish by reading verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13. He, he sums it all up in such a beautiful and powerful way. Starting in verse 8, it says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is absolutely everything Paul's saying. He goes on to say, verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know if you remember, but we looked at how Jesus, he says, the golden rule that you should do unto others as you would have others do unto you, this sums up the law and the prophets. You know, he He broke it down to to loving God and loving your neighbor. But when he wanted to say just one commandment, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, wait, is that to the neglect of loving God? No, because God is crazy about your neighbor. God is crazy about the people around you. God is crazy about your enemies. And so when you love them, you're going to come in contact with Jesus. You're going to fall in love with God if you are operating in his principles of love. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is absolutely everything for us. We are called to endure in love. And in the end, there's going to be traditions. There's going to be rituals. There's going to be a false worship that keeps people from loving. That's what happened in the days of Jesus. The Pharisees weren't able to love their father and their mother because they were trying to find some purity, some, some, some higher religious uh, calling. And in the process, they were actually becoming selfish by their traditions. I love how it encapsulates this idea that we've been talking about in the Review and Herald in 1891. It says in August 16, our, uh, edition of the, the Review and Herald, it says, true worship consists in working together with Christ. True worship It's about joining Jesus in what he ever lives to do in working for the good of other people. Prayers, exhortation, and talk are cheap fruits which are frequently tied on. That's a tough sentence for me. I love to pray. I love, well, I do a lot of preaching. I do a lot of talking about God. That's not enough. That's that's the easy part. That's not what religion 
boils down to. Didn't James say here is pure and undefiled religion? That we should watch out for the widows and the orphans and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. She goes on to to summarize it. But fruits that are manifested in good works, in caring for the needy, the fatherless, and widows are genuine fruits and grow naturally upon the good tree. (laughs) Jesus is interested in your heart. And as you fall in love with Jesus, these are the fruits that are going to be manifested in your life. You're going to be searching out the needy. You're going to be searching out those who are weeping. You're going to be searching out those who are joyful. You're going to be coming close to people every direction in your life. Your relationships are going to be enhanced. This is what it's all about in the end. Any other form of worship in the end is a false gospel. It's a false worship And it's leading us to worship the beast. But God is calling us to worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, I want to live this kind of life. Because I recognize in my little girls that, that they naturally focus on whatever is put before them. We, when they go to bed... If, if we're talking about, okay, and so in the morning we're going to read baby Jesus. Clip, the one where he's going clip-clop, clip-clop on the donkey and Mary's headed. You know, you've probably read that as a child, right? We'll read that story in the morning. They wake up in the morning, get the book, let's read it. That's their constant thought is about what we have set before them. And I want for them to love Jesus. And I want for them to love people around them. And I want to do whatever it takes in my own life to recognize his love for me. Take that time in his presence to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. So that what they know in their daddy is somebody that draws close to people, that loves people, that will do anything for people, that will lay down my life for people. Because I want them to worship in spirit and in truth. I want them to truly love God. Nothing's more important than that. It's what we're called to. We worship in spirit and in truth. In closing, I'm just going to watch uh, another uh, video. This, this video, the statistics are a little bit off. It's, it's from the song, What Now? Uh, my, my pastor friend, Godfrey Miranda, actually made this video a while back when we were working together on a youth evangelism team. But it asks this question that reminds us of where we can go today to find Jesus. If I could tell you that Jesus was out in that courtyard, if I could tell you that he was in downtown Templeton and, and there weren't biblical texts telling you that that's not where he's at, would you run there right now to, be, to see Jesus? This song reminds us that Jesus has already told us where he's at. He's told us how to find him. He's all around us and he might be a lot closer than you expect. God, thank you. Thank you for your infinite love that pursues us every day of our lives and that simply won't stop. Lord God, I ask that we would open our hearts more fully to that. That you'd wake us up morning by morning with with a passion to see the face of Jesus. To recognize your love is revealed in your life. And that then you would cause us to overflow into the lives of people around us and that they would know that we are Christians by our love. Lord, if there's any roots 
of false worship in our lives, if there's any tendencies that are leading us towards that final choice to worship the beast, we ask, Father, that you would reveal those things to us and that you would root them out of our hearts. We want to be all yours. We want to be living sacrifices that are wholeheartedly given to the one who's given himself for us. Thank you, Father, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you that we can worship you with extravagant love and extreme submission. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus as we go out to live lives of worship, true worship. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.